You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 275 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Today, Nick Schwaderer and I are going to be doing a host catch-up episode so we can talk about all the cool things that are happening in Ruby on Rails, tech, and our lives. Hey, Nick. How are you? Uh, I am great, Brittany. It's good to be back. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I think I saw on Twitter that you were just coming back from a conference. Yeah, I was, I was lucky to uh, give a talk. I just want to say it's nice talking to you. I think the last time we were both on simultaneously was just when you took over the helm. So it's been been really fun uh, following the show and, and, and how it's grown. But, and I really appreciate how you've been stepping in when I've needed you. So usually that's because of a roller derby game or traveling. So um, really, thank you for all your help. No, honestly, it's 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 my pleasure. You know, like uh, you know me well enough that uh, ask me to talk into a microphone to someone about Ruby for a while, and I'm I'm ready to go. Um, yeah. So uh, I I just recently I think it came out on YouTube a few days ago. Was lucky enough to speak at a conference this time a bit more. Uh, of a broad conference so it wasn't just like ruby or rails uh or even just devs is a multi-track um and uh it, it, it covered kind of folks who might be more involved in products involved on in software building or uh or the developers themselves i i really stayed in the software track and i spoke in the software track specifically um but yeah so th- this talk that i gave was super fun I have a habit of making talks that have nothing to do about my day job, but generally involve Ruby. And I focused on, um, here in the UK, we had a problem about a year ago where one entire carrier lost their data network for days, uh, about 30 to 40 million. So just about half the country was out of data. Um, and nobody really talked about it after it came back online. This is O2. And I was really concerned as, as someone who really relies on data. And I, and I kind of started asking myself a few questions. And this is what I went through through the talk. I, I thought, what, how did I survive without data? I only got a smartphone in 2012. You know, we used to print out our maps before we went on a road trip or have maps. Uh, we used to call people for information or new, no phone numbers or, or you would you look know, for friendly people along the side of the road and ask for help, and they would tell you to turn at the Seven Eleven or yeah. at the McDonald's. That was a thing. Yeah, or or um, uh, or also just social networking. I think is the other you know big branch of this. Like non-develop. So I think developers would still do this, but non-developers pre-smartphone would have gone on their laptops or their desktops to use Twitter or Facebook, right, for quite a long time. And it's really only in the last, you know, half a decade, better part of a decade that we just used to having it all the time um, where our phone used to be. You know, now we have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But but I kind of extrapolate this out into talking about connectivity and um, how, how can we, you know, access the outside world and our applications and information in a natural disaster as my uh, test case. Because in a natural disaster, you're more likely to have networks go down either from the natural disaster or from overuse. Um, and I just kind of talked through a product where, you know, uh, you have SMS, you have voice, you have data, and 
SMS is still the most robust because it can be stored if it can't make it from one point to the other. It has the less hit, least amount of hit on, on networks. So it doesn't take down networks as quickly as voice and data overuse. Um, and basically I use this as an excuse to build out a whole Twilio text-based app where I can text commands and queries to get information. Like just from the developer side, that's, that's my big lead for the tie-in to make as complex a Twilio-based app as I can. So that was, yeah, it's pre pretty fun to go through it. Uh, the three services I put together as an example, but you could do infinite ones were ones that would allow you to search and query news via the news API. Uh, the other one would be to get the local weather and it was pretty dynamic. You could enter postcodes or, or your city name or whatever, or zip codes as we say, we're out back in our good old states. And finally, um, Google, you know, just directions. So put in two locations, fuzzy match, and get the, you know, the printed out route like you used to on uh, MapQuest or something. So, yeah. That sounds really cool. And I feel so fortunate that we both program in Ruby because even though you were at a development conference that wasn't focused specifically on Ruby, you know, Ruby is just so elegant that when you print it out on the slides, most developers are able to follow along and be able to translate it into their own language. Yeah, exactly. I think if, if, if you're a developer, it's just so readable. And to give Ruby its credit, because um, there's not, I'd say there's not as much Ruby in the UK as other parts of the world. Uh, the speaker after me was Nick Charlton of ThoughtBot. And the sponsor of the software track was a Ruby on Rails company in the West Country. So the room was had a lot of Ruby going on um, for something uh, that, you know, uh, had a lot of languages in attendance. That's very cool. I have a developer conference that I'm attending in August called Abstractions. We've had an episode about it about 10 episodes back. Uh, they just announced a brand new set of speakers that are going to be coming. And are you familiar? I'm, I'm going to swear, which I think is okay. That's fine, are you yeah. familiar with uh, Simone Gertz? She's the one who does uh, the shitty robots. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she's coming and oh. I am really excited about this because she does incredibly cool stuff. I think she just turned a Tesla Model 3 into a pickup truck. I just, I, I think she's going to be an amazing speaker. So even though, of course, she's not related specifically to what I do, I'm really excited about just going to a technical conference with just such a wide range of really neat speakers. That is so cool. So that, that I have a question for you then on that line. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so there's, there's kind of the, I'd say, web developer community and the Venn diagram overlap with the Ruby community, and we, we kind of peer into both. But what you just said there, you know, I've, I've been on the outside looking in. There is a vibrant maker community generally. And I'm wondering if we have a lot of similar traits and interests and maybe are technically makers like she is, right? Like with, with the maker community doing building these robots and, and things that you can interact with physically, right? It's interesting that you say that. So my brother-in-law for a living, he works as a mechanic on um, autonomous, autonomous vehicles because in Pittsburgh, we have Carnegie Mellon University. And so it's really become like a big boom for autonomous vehicles, Uber piloted here. And now we have others, several car makers uh, in that space. And so what he does is he's soldering and putting together these vehicles while not directly interacting with the software, I'm so impressed with what he does because for us, if we write a bad file and we forget to you know, end a method, that's okay. We can go in and fix it. Meanwhile, if my brother-in-law breaks apart, that part's now broken. 
And so he just has to be so much more careful about his work. But there's absolutely an inter, um, an intersection between the two. There are so many cool projects out there using Ruby and Raspberry Pi. And it, it's just really neat. And so I, I see it as a personal goal to interact with more makers just because I think the possibilities are just way more, uh, way more interesting in some ways. Because if you can create a robot or something that's controlled by the software that you write, it's so much easier and more fun to show that to perhaps non-technical friends and family. Yeah, yeah, you definitely have a point. Like if I put together an interesting, you know, uh, way to organize a class and some methods, like that's that really doesn't have a large uh, payoff value outside of my dev friends, but but the physical world where we do have a leg up, right? Like if if you or I wanted to dab our toe into Arduino Raspberry Pi land, we'd have a significant advantage with get even if it, we have to write some Java or something, even if we don't know it just understanding what's going on and then hooking up the physical to it. Like we do have quite an in if we wanted to kind of branch out. It's it's quite a neat superpower that we we are blessed to enjoy. So totally agreed. Now speaking of branching out, I'm actually working on a really interesting problem at work at the moment. The thing I love about working at the Cultural Trust is because there's only two developers, when something interesting and new comes up, it, invariably I get to interact with it. And I don't know if you've heard about this. Um, so ITP 2.1 came out in February. So basically WebKit announced the release of the latest iteration of Safari's intelligent tracking prevention. And so basically what this means is that web analytics folks are gonna tremble in their boots because this is gonna affect how Google Analytics works. Oh so God. any JavaScript library wanting to store a cookie in the web browser will have that cookie capped to a seven-day lifetime. <laughs> wow. That's tough. I mean, that's going to be tough because essentially if a user visits your site on day one, they're going to get that cookie tagged to them. Three days later, if they visit your site again, that's totally fine. The cookie is still alive and the cookie will then ex um, extend out for another seven days. Now, if it takes another 10 days for that user to come back to your site, that cookie has now been eliminated, and now that user is considered a brand new person to the site, which is a huge deal for a lot of marketing folks. Wow. So would that affect, I, so I don't know if this ties in, but I know that with Rails, when you get into cookie land, if you do the permanent thing, it's like 20-year expiration, right? Would that would that apply in these situations as well and make sure to invalidate after seven days probably? So I'm not entirely positive. This is what I'm starting to dig into. From okay. what I understand with this new protocol, if the cookie is set by JavaScript's document.cookie, that is what's gonna get eliminated within mm. seven days. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm gonna try to set that cookie server side um, instead of setting the GA cookie with document.cookie, you can set it with an HTTP response. So okay. what I'm going to attempt to do is uh, grab the cookie and see if the user has the cookie to begin with. And if they do, what I'm going to try to do is parse that cookie, look for that unique identifier, and then reset that cookie into the response header. So that way I can extend the longevity of the cookie. Now this is like a very new thing that's going on. So I, you're probably going to agree with me, Nick. The first thing that I always do is, is there a gem out there that's already doing this? He's <laughs> yeah, already thought yeah. about this. So I've been digging around and it, it doesn't seem to be a thing that has been quite attacked yet. 
But the good news is there's several gems out there that will help you with uh, setting server-side Google Analytics code. Um, so that's what I'm starting to look at. So I've started looking at Staccato. And then in terms of just setting a server-side HTTP cookie, I saw that Sparkle Motion has a gem called HTTP cookie. And so it's like Sparkle Motion, I've heard of that before. Like, I wonder if they've made other gems that I use. And so I, you know, went and looked at the GitHub organization. And of course, Nokogiri is one of their big gems. And uh, we all use Nokogiri. I thought so. I heard Spark. Yeah, I thought that sounded familiar. <laughs> so um, that is just like a really interesting um, problem that I'm attacking right now. And Really, what I want to try to do is experiment with setting a different cookie with a different name to see if this is going to work. Because as I'm experimenting with these things, it's live data that's going into Google Analytics. So I would hate to overwrite good Google Analytics cookie code that's going in um, as I'm testing this. So it's one of those things where having a test instance of Google Analytics would be would be helpful for sure. I, I just find it all fascinating because I'm since you, you probably know what it's like since I work you know with a set bit of products with a set company not not design house or anything we, you know there's certain things I don't get experience and since all of our apps are kind of b2b SaaS closed in I don't really get to go into the world of Google Analytics or, or the public facing world much we have a set you know small number of uh, users who we like know all by name and are logging into our system so my, my Google Analytics game is really, really lax. And Well, mine's rusty in itself. Our front-end developer, Danielle, is the one who normally deals with Google Analytics. But the way that my boss will assign tickets, he sees client-side versus server-side. And so since Google Analytics up to this point has been client-side, it's all been under Danielle's domain. Mm. But now that we're trying to get around this new stipulation with ITP 2.1, server side looks like it's going to be the solution so it's kind of now in my basket which is good it's going to make me a bit more well-rounded because i agree with you i do not dive into analytics much well i i'll tell you what as if you're not busy enough already a talk or a podcast or a blog on uh server side cookies and seven day expirations and all that would be something i would really enjoy um because it's just something that i find fascinating that i don't have a lot of experience with so Oh, That's good really to know. Cool. We will include that link in the show notes, so I'll be sure to grab that from you, Nick. <laughs> um, so what else is new with you? Uh, I'm gonna, can, if it's okay, I might make a micro mini announcement on the podcast today. Yeah, I've got, go I've got, for it. Got something I've been putting together that is tiny. I'm trying, you know, some people build things up. I'm trying to build this down, but I'm really excited about it. And I've just been working on it for a long while, slow burning, but this last week, picking up to, to launch it this week, so I'll announce it today. I am putting together uh, my own cute little weekly Ruby newsletter, um, but it's not generic. It's not like I love Ruby Weekly. I'm not trying to get into anybody else's space. I'm trying to create something that I wish existed. That's literally my modus operandi here. Um, I have a horrible habit of digging into old videos, uh, Git history, uh, podcasts, blogs, whatever, with, with Ruby. And I, and I used to write a newspaper article um, column when I from 2006 to 2011 in my old community called Back in the Day, where we talk about what happened that week in the county 10, 
25, 40 years ago. I was like, gosh, I wish there was something like that for Ruby and what was happening this week, however many years ago. And I've got the first one just about put together. Probably when this airs, it'll be be up. But yeah, just imagine like Ruby Weekly, but blast from the past every week. So That's really exciting just because I've been in the Ruby world for about five years. And I always get really jealous when people are talking about the good old days of Ruby or they talk about things that I completely missed, like the whole, you know, why the lucky stiff, like yes. all that kind of stuff. And so I would love the opportunity to be able to relive that. Well, I'm glad you say that because like that's kind of how I got into this rabbit hole because uh, why the lucky stiff, you know, I, I wasn't there for that era either and, and I love all of his work. And so I was, it, it all started like eight months ago. I was on Web Archive reading through his post from the beginning, 2006 era. And that's how this, I started pulling these resources and links together from back then, all these aggregators and people who were blogging back in 2009 about Ruby. And I thought, you know what, this stuff isn't dead. Like it should be brought, you know, to light uh, again. So uh, I'll give you, I'll give you a little preview on this inaugural issue, something that you might find interesting. So I found a, a gist from 2012 uh, where an individual had posted some code and said, is this the right way to do, um, the, the, to organize my controller? And there was a massive Ruby who's who that turned out to comment on it, including DHH, Avdi Grimm, Gary Bernhardt, Uncle Bob, um, oh gosh, and about three or four others. That, and uh, uh, the guy, the, the, the gentleman who uh, created Virtus, I'm trying, tr Peter something. But anyway, just about everybody just appears on this. So that's that's one of the links in this latest issue is an amazing discussion from just about half the big names you know today in Ruby just on a random chist seven years ago. Very so, cool. So what is your go. newsletter going to be called? You know what? Sorry, I got so much into it. Yes, I do. Past Rubies. Past Rubies. Oh, that's great. Well, sign me up as your first subscriber for sure. All right. Thanks. Um, awesome. We are going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Ready to take your programming skills to the next level? At Flatiron School, they help people of all experience levels launch or upskill their tech careers in as little as four months. Born in Manhattan inspired by the iconic, innovative Flatiron building, they teach software engineering, data science, and UX UI design to students around the world, and have helped thousands launch meaningful careers in tech since 2012. Whether you want to learn in person or online, Flatiron School helps students change careers with confidence with one-on-one -on -one career coaching and a tuition back guaranteed. Follow their proven job search framework and receive a job in six months or your tuition back. Join the thousands of people who have changed things. Learn more at flatironschool.com Ruby. Thank you for your support, Flatiron. So I would love to bring up um, the announcements that have been coming out of GitHub lately. So the former host of the Ruby on Rails podcast, Kyle Daigle, has been working on acquisitions at GitHub, which is really pretty exciting. And I feel just so much innovation has been kind of coming out of GitHub ever since the Microsoft um, acquisition. But they announced that they acquired Pull Panda and that they're now going to be offering it as a free service uh, to all all customers. Had you heard of Pull Panda before? So it's funny you asked me that. I, I got the notification in my house what very recently, like in the last 24 hours or something. And I didn't get to read it. So could you please tell me about what Pull Panda was? Because I feel out of the loop on this acquisition. 
Yeah, so Pull Panda, I had also not heard of it before. And then I saw in the release that it used to be called Pull Reminders. And that's when I was like, okay, I have definitely heard about Pull Reminders. So essentially what Pull Panda does is it, it will help you um, set reminders of open pull requests that haven't been reviewed. I believe it will also um, help distribute the engineers on your team who are getting pull, uh, pull requests, review, code review requests as well. And it will actually uh, show you some analytics as to like how the engineering staff is working around pull requests. And so this used to be a thing that was not um, trivial in terms of cost, but I mean, definitely something that you'd have to consider adding to your organization. It kind of reminds me of um, Code Climate's velocity feature where they're trying to help you find the engineers on your team that are the most effective. Um, for us, we're a team of three, so it might not make a whole ton of sense, but I feel like once you get into at least five engineers on your team, this could be really helpful. So, so Pull Panda was was an existing service. Was it integrated? With, yes, with it was Panda? on GitHub's marketplace. But oh. but it, now it's part of the core feature set. So that's a great question. Okay. So a lot of the new announcements coming out of GitHub is them releasing new features. For this one, it's still in the marketplace, but now it's free. Oh, that's so that's a really interesting model. So you said it came from it's it's kind of like it is an acquisition but it's still in the marketplace it's just they, they've made it free for customers now is something that we can all enjoy as github users yes as of right now though the in the announce the announcement of the acquisition so it's abby nova was the founder and ceo of bull panda and i believe the only person who was working on it which is incredibly impressive um, he's of course joining GitHub to integrate Pull Panda and continue to grow its features as part of the core product. So I, what I suspect will happen is that they will start folding into core GitHub. But at least for right now, we can enjoy Pull Panda for free as a GitHub customer. No, that's fantastic, right? Because I think uh, from what it sounds like, and I'll do a deeper dive on it after after we talk, but uh, sounds like it could be great help with you know making sure pull requests don't hang out there or that you don't have one engineer doing everything for the PR reviews I'm guessing absolutely I saw so I was going through github today because like yourself you probably spend a considerable amount of time with github I saw another new feature that is in beta that I am really excited about and it's called jump to definition so basically you can navigate your code with more ease in select public repositories you can now click on a function and method calls to jump to their definitions in the same repository. I don't know for you, but I've been relying on an IDE in order to do that. So if there's an open source library and I need to understand where the method is, I can either search for that in GitHub or I was going to have to pull it down and open it in my own IDE in order to have it traverse over the code in order to find the definition. But having that natively in GitHub, I think it's going to be huge. That's that's amazing because like I, exactly how you described is what I'd do. It'd either be doing my best with GitHub search or literally, and this is quite onerous, isn't it? Like forking or cloning down the code from say Rails core or something. If you want to learn more about a method, command shift F, look through all the repo, but you'll be able to do this from within the browser uh, inside yep. GitHub. Yep, absolutely. Within the browser. Currently it's in select public repositories. I don't know if the plan is to roll it out to everybody. I, I suspect maybe, but 
Um, yeah, definitely take note when you're looking at open source libraries over the next couple of weeks. Uh, give Jump to Definition a try. GitHub's features have absolutely been on fire this year. It's crazy. They have. I mean, without a doubt, it, I don't think I would host code anywhere else at this point. Well, because there was that, and then the the two that I can think of that I didn't even have in my head, but now that you've said it, is the used by that you've started seeing on some repositories for how many repos use that code. And then uh, also the, the sponsorship matching, I think, for open sources. Maybe. Oh, the sponsorship matching is huge. I'd be really curious to see how that's been doing because it was announced about a month ago, I believe. I'd be curious to know if there are any new companies that weren't sponsoring before that are now doing it because they have an easier way of actually getting into it. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to, to see that as well. I'm just, um, you know, pleased that they've just managed to do this because I feel like a long time I used GitHub and it was amazing, but I didn't feel the stream of uh, awesome features. Um, and I'll be honest, like in my day job, we, we, you know, we use GitLab and I'm happy with that. But personally, with all my open source a lot of projects, I'm always in GitHub. I think that a lot of the communities in GitHub, so I care, you know, as everyone does about it doing well and, and just seeing all these features that look like the right direction. And, and, and by the way, on, um, what is it, Pole Panda uh, getting acquired. So maybe, the, and you said if it is one uh, engineer, maybe that's a new model. We can just try our best to make really, really useful tools to put on the GitHub marketplace and, and maybe hope to get acquired as well. Maybe this is the new model. That's a really good point. I believe it's working very well for Slack as well, because remember, um, Screen Hero was an integration with Slack that was acquired just because they were doing so well and that became a core feature within Slack, whether or not we liked it or not. Yeah. Um, but that was very effective for them. So I believe this whole marketplace model is definitely a thing. The only issue is that you are so, you're putting all your your bets into one bucket because you, you have to hope that that marketplace specifically is going to want to acquire you. Well, that's it. You have no negotiating position. You really but, do not. <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't want to go too much about last year, but you know, yeah, I've, I've had my eyes on GitHub ever since, of course, there's their, their personal acquisition last year. And, um, you know, just see kind of over the last year, how they've gone and it's been, it's been great. And, uh, Everybody, all the all the people that we love in our community are still there and kicking butt, and they have more, of course, with with uh, uh, Derek Pryor going over as well. So, yeah, it's just been really fun to watch them. I feel personally that Microsoft is the one to watch right now. I think a lot of people are focused on Amazon Web Services and Google in terms of upcoming tech, but I feel that Microsoft has made so many incredibly smart moves over the last couple of years that. I really do think that Microsoft is going to be making some very big moves and establishing a very a, a much stronger hold into the market in the next coming years, and I'm I'm just really excited for them because I think they're doing it right. I, I totally agree with you, and and it just seems even when I'm on Twitter, the amount of talented, funny, interesting engineers that I see, and then they'll have the Microsoft tag in their bio, right? Like it's. Uh, it's just kind of permeating, but only in a positive sense. I cannot recall anything that's been negative in quite a while from that company. And, uh, you know, as somebody who is a former big Windows machine person who's now a Mac machine person, you know, like, I've, I'm, I'm eyeing them up again. I mean, obviously, I'll, I'm still on my Mac, my old, my old Mac, and, but, um, yeah, 
Um, speaking of machines, can I uh, talk to you about keyboards for just a moment, if that's all right? Oh my goodness, yes, because I'm actually considering building a mechanical keyboard, so please do. Okay, so um, this is, uh, I know we're on the Ruby on Rails podcast, but this is tertiary. We all have to have keyboards to write Rails applications, so this is how I relate it. But I'm, I'm going to start with something that's a little bit more on the serious side. So um, I, I've been thinking about ergonomics and, and hand and wrist strain recently. It started when, I don't know if you remember a number of weeks or about a month or so ago, Richard Schneeman was talking on Twitter about um, some problems that he'd been facing with his hands with work. I don't know if you saw that. And it really, it got to me because he, he was, you know, very sincere and he's use it trying to use uh, hands-free coding um, and, and going through all the software and getting help and it looks like it's starting to get a little bit better but gosh the only way for a non-dev I could say is it'd be kind of like finding out uh, uh, a singer you really admired having their, their larynx you know be inflamed or, or, or have an issue or, or something it was it's just it's just quite a shock and and Funnily enough, about two and a half weeks ago, I was typing away at work like I always did, and I had stabbing pain through my left hand. And uh, I've been kind of on, for about a week and a half after that, I was on about 0% with my left hand. So trying to code uh, a day job and then also a few hours aside remote work with one hand was very uh, difficult. And in the last three or four days, I've been about 40% with my left hand. But um, the positive of all this process, and it is getting better, um, but it's I think it's something that developers need to think about before it happens, because God forbid you try and push through the pain and end up needing surgery or something, having repetitive strain carpal tunnel, um, is getting an ergonomic setup and giving yourself wrist rest. And I think you could do a whole thing about stretches and all that, but it's given me an excuse to get my first mechanical keyboard, uh, the ErgoDox Easy, um, which is used by, uh, primarily influenced my decision by uh, Sh uh, Richard Schneeman and Aaron Patterson and them. It's not cheap at all, but I was in pain and desperate and had my credit card out. Um, but, and it's funny because I'm subscribed to the subreddit mechanical keyboards, even though I wasn't ever into them. And I see that there's a big community around mechanical keyboards and the switches and the caps and like the the, the resistance and, the, and how clicky it is and all these things, but actually also getting into this community for the ergonomics of it. So I've literally got this thing set in front of me. Today is my first day using it. Wild setup. It's a split keyboard. It's got about a foot between each half. The thumbs lay out totally different. All the keys are custom, open source code mapped. Um, but it's. I just got to say, if you're interested in going to mechanical keyboards, one, it's probably a wise step for the ergonomic opportunities it gives you. But two, oh my goodness, I could see my paycheck being in serious trouble because of the temptation to get all funky new caps and, and change it out to be really stylish or maybe get a different one that has really clicky switches. Um, yeah, so... Um, so my boyfriend my has actually been experimenting with creating keycaps in molds 
And that is kind of where I got hooked because the idea of not only having a mechanical keyboard, but having keycaps that are custom made based exactly on what I wanted. So we talked about actually making a Ruby gem keycap oh. uh, for, uh, I would just be so excited. <laughs> do, you, do you know what key you'd put that one on? Do you have, do you have one in mind? Well, it certainly wouldn't be the semicolon, would it? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> would it be a... Do you, do, do you have a Mac or a Linux setup? Or I have Mac, but I, I, like yourself, am considering maybe going to a Linux machine at some point. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, command key, you know, that'd be a nice one for, for a Ruby maybe or... Um... Yeah, I don't, I that's don't. a good idea. No, I like that. No, that would be a lot of fun. So yes, I'm going to definitely check out the keyboard that you have and definitely keep us updated on how it is, you know, since this is just day one for you. I mean, it, it's probably a hard habit to break. So it will take time, but it sounds like just like learning Vim or <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's supposed to be worth it down the line. Uh, my All right. Day one description. It's about 0.01x as painful as the first day I tried Vim. Um, but it's yeah, of course, yeah. Using keys that are laid slightly different out, uh, laid out slightly differently, um, and mapped slightly differently is going to be an adjustment. However, um, I'll give you an example. Most of my pain was in my left thumb, so mm -hmm. I was able to reconfigure the keyboard to not use my left thumb at all, and that has made it so that I today, for the first time, I could type with both hands all day, right, and only have about mm, 40, 50 percent of the pain I was having before. So I'll, I'll reconfigure them back when my left thumb's back in the game. But uh, gosh, it's, it's cool to have all that power and be able to do it, you know, with their web. It's, it's actually in a web GUI uh, software setup where you, where you mess with your keys and then download the code for it. So, yeah, it's not bad. Well, that sounds, so, that sounds really appealing. I can't wait to check that out. Well, Nick, uh, thank you so much for doing this host catch-up episode with me. Where can our listeners find you? Sure. You can find me with the name Schwad anywhere, just about on GitHub and uh, Schwad4HD14 on Twitter. Listeners, if you'd like to follow me, I have finally um, updated a brand new blog using Jackal, uh, Brittany Martin, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y-M-A-R-T-I-N dot dev will uh, link out to all of my links. Thank you all so much for listening. We have an exciting episode for you next week. Talk to you soon.